Hey, if you're enjoying this show, uh, consider supporting us on our Patreon. You can get cool perks like access to these episodes a week before they go public, and you can pick an album for us to review. Any support is greatly appreciated, so if you feel inclined, go to patreon.com slash polyphonicpress. You're listening to Polyphonic Press, a podcast for music lovers. Join your hosts, Jeremy Boyd and John Van Dyke, as they take a deep dive into a classic album and analyze it track by track. Hey, welcome to Polyphonic Press. I'm Jeremy Boyd. And I'm John Van Dyke. And uh, let's take a look, hit the button, and see what album we're going to be listening to this week. And boom, T-Rex, Electric Warrior. Ooh. Cool. Okay. Uh, All right. Yeah, I think I can get into this. Okay, so uh, Electric Warrior is a 1971 album by Mark Boland's band T-Rex. They're sixth since their debut as Tyrannosaurus Rex in 1968, and they're second under the name T-Rex. The album marked a turning point in the band's sound, moving away from the folk-oriented music of the group's previous albums and pioneering a flamboyant, pop-friendly take on electric rock and roll known as glam rock. Mm -hmm. So this is, I guess, one of the first glam rock albums. Yeah. Um, It's certainly the the first of their... What year did it come out? Uh, 71. 71, yeah. Okay, that's pretty early. All right, so um, without any further ado, let's get into the first song, which is called Mumbo Sun. Here we go. Beneath the bebop moon, I want to croon with you. Beneath the mambo sun, I got cool. Uh, that was kind of like a mid-tempo rock kind of thing i don't know if i would necessarily open the album with it but i liked it yeah yeah it seemed a little bit unusual for an album opener but um actually i've heard things like that it uses an album opener but usually they're not full length tracks kind of it works as like it's a groove that sort of introduces it or something like that but i guess uh i guess it can kind of works um it it, yeah it's, it's not what you would think but but it would, uh, I guess, kind of work. And, and I suppose it has worked because it's on this album. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, one of the things I liked about it, it's very bass heavy. Um, it's very busy in the low end. And then the guitars are kind of on top and then the vocals are right in the middle. Um, what was interesting was the drummer was um, playing this rhythm on the tom-toms, which I thought was cool and it gave this sort of like almost like a conga groove but it was played with sticks on the toms yeah i love it when drummers do that honestly it's sort of um it gives it this energy i mean the song can sound really laid back but underneath it there's this like energy running it yeah it's like this uh electric bass to a a breezy sort of atmosphere yeah and uh, I I like I always like that um, 
the fuzzy guitar tone of uh, yeah. T-Rex. And I have, a, I have a feeling we're going to be hearing a lot of it throughout the album. Oh, I think so, too. <laughs> this is this is Goliath. Yeah. This is, uh, um, I believe it's uh, um, Mark Bolin and his, uh, he had a, uh, a Les Paul burst at this point. Oh, I'm guessing that's what we're hearing. Yeah, I would imagine so. Um, oh, yeah, so uh, moving on to the next song is called uh, Cosmic Dancer. I dance myself right at the womb. I dance myself right at the womb. Okay, there was a lot going on there. Um, yeah, I it, have heard that one before. Yeah, it's um, it started off pretty slow, uh, but um. Towards the end, I was well. Okay, uh, I wasn't really expecting the string section. Um, that was interesting. Oh, yeah. I it, and it seemed like it was a bit. It could have been a bit over the top, but it wasn't. No. Um. No. Um. As far as like doing like a an orchestration, it it uh, came off still very. Uh, not overproduced it wasn't overdone it wasn't uh uh ostentatious <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah um and then you had the backwards guitar at the mm-hmm. end there that was cool yeah that was really cool and i wasn't and again it's it's something that um shouldn't fit but it does yeah especially when the rest of it's uh, uh acoustic guitar driven with an orchestra behind it yeah but yeah, I think it, again it was partly the drums. Uh, they they weren't quite as uh, you know conga rhythm as they were before, but there was still that sort of element. It was right. slowed down a bit, but it was still carrying it through, and that did help blend it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the drums were definitely doing some interesting stuff. They weren't just playing a straight, you know, nope. four on the floor beat. Um, yeah, and yeah, no, they the the drums were doing exactly what the song called for. weren't They weren't overplaying, but they weren't just playing a simple beat either they were they yeah. kept it interesting i think every all the instruments were doing something interesting they weren't just playing the song but they weren't showing off either they were doing they were playing whatever the song called for they weren't they were playing to serve the song but they were also doing something interesting at the same time which yeah. is really hard a really hard balance to do yeah um, so I don't actually know that much about T-Rex. Was it, um, was it just, was it just Mark Bolin and a bunch of studio mus- musicians or, or were they at an actual band? I'm pretty sure he had a band. Okay. Um, I, yeah, I'm not that familiar, <laughs> uh, with either, but I would always assume they had a, he had a band. He certainly had a. Group of musicians he toured with. I don't remember their names. I'm sure there were some familiar people in there, and it's not coming to me at the moment. But so I'm it's just me today. <laughs> so I'm just uh, uh, reading the uh, album credits here. Uh, so T-Rex is a band. Mickey Finn on congos, okay. bongos, and vocals. Steve okay. Curry on bass guitar. Bill Legend on drums and tambourine. Um. This is something interesting and something I didn't know. You might know this is uh, Rick Wakeman played keyboards on Get It On. Hmm. 
No, I did not know that. That's very interesting and totally a little is not what he's known for. No. <laughs> is doing stuff like that. No. He's he's way more flamboyant on his playing and in, in most especially with yes and Yeah. And uh we'll talk a bit about more about that when that song comes up, but uh um yeah, interesting. I I did not know that and I was nope, not expecting that. <laughs> but uh Anyway, let's get into the next song, which is called Easter. So that was interesting. That almost had like a, a country feel to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the intro almost sounded like um, something that came like nine or ten years later like uh, like a new wave thing um and then it went into this country vibe which was i was not expecting that transition yeah. um it, well it's it's funny glam is sort of like a predecessor to like punk and and even new wave in a lot of ways there's a lot of parallels there and it came out of acid rock and mm-hmm. and uh proto-punk and yes even the psychedelia like the backwards guitar which we heard earlier yeah there's a pretty it's a pretty straight line i mean there's a couple of uh actually proto-punk and proto-metal were almost the same genre before they split off in late 70s <laughs> yeah so um well they weren't really known that they were just rock yeah and you, yeah you can see, sort of follow the line of of um like proto-punk with bands like the Stooges and um, MC5 and and bands like that. And then going into uh, glam rock, excuse me, you have bands like the New York Dolls who are sort of in between glam and punk. Um, And then you have the New York punk scene that kind of took over the late seventies. So there's a very like straight line you can draw between yeah, but it was also a UK punk scene at the same time. So, and and lots of glam bands from the UK as well. So there was a, they 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 shared a, quite a culture between New York and London, um, around that period. Yeah, and it's interesting to hear this album incorporate so many genres like that. That was, but it, it was country, but in a in a glam rock. Mm-hmm sort of way and also putting t-rex's stamp on it like it, it sounds like e- e- even if you don't didn't hear the vocals you would go oh that kind of sounds like t-rex but it's a country song as well like or yep. not us i wouldn't classify it as country i'd say it would have a it has a country feel yeah yeah it, it's a it's a con- country structure sort of but it's also a blues structure mm-hmm. in a lot of ways um but yeah, it's uh, it's that sort of honky tonk, um, sort of structure actually. Yeah. Um, so you would hear it from guys like uh, Dwayne Eddy back in the early '60s or something like that. So that's where actually, apparently, he was a really big fan of uh, Chet Atkins and Dwayne Eddy and stuff like that, which is why, well, after his Les Paul got, it was in his trunk, um. And he got someone smashed into the back of him, and, and it smashed up the Les Paul. But he had it repaired, and he had it sprayed orange because he liked uh, the gretches that uh, um, Chet Atkins had with the orange. Mm-hmm. So that's why he sprayed it that because he was a oh, fan okay. of those guys. 
<laughs> cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, that's cool. And that makes sense that, at, and instead of having like, uh, that twangy guitar, they put the fuzz guitar and strings on it, um, yeah. to make it his, he, he did that to make it his own. Of course. Um, one of the things that I, I read about this album earlier is, uh, I, uh, what, um, T-Rex was before they sort of went into this and this album was a departure. They were really more of a folk band. Um, and, uh, what the goal of this, uh, album was to take some of the folk lyrics of the hippie, uh, psychedelic stuff Mm -hmm. of the, or the folk scene rather, and take the lyrics, but, uh, have it in just like an old fashioned, uh, rock and roll setting. That was the goal of this album. Okay. And I think yeah, they, nice. they're somewhat accomplishing it, but they're also kind of creating something new or not new, but they're doing their own thing with it as well. They're not just copying fifties rock and roll. Yeah. Yeah. They've clearly got their, uh, it's still a very 1970s approach to, uh, fifties uh, again structure yeah. of rock and roll yeah um okay so let's hear the next one uh which is called monolith would describe that as psychedelic glam doo-wop <laughs> yeah it sort of definitely uh sort of fits in that thing but in in uh all those categories that that that, that fits into what he was planning on doing yeah with the album that like that basically is him succeeding in his goal <laughs> yeah that's that that's the the goal of this album firing on all four cylinders yeah <laughs> yeah or eight or, wow, wow. or what size engine many. are we yeah yeah <laughs> um yeah uh that was an interesting song i liked uh i again this this he's using the strings a, a lot on this album which i'm i was quite surprised by like i d- didn't think i would be hearing that many string arrangements on all these songs. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's sort of, that's a very interesting choice to make uh production choice to make for, for an album like this, but it does, again, it seems to work. And, it, but, uh, you can sort of hear the, uh, the beginning of that, uh, real glam rock production sound where everything is sort of dry, but well, maybe the word isn't dry. There's like a, there's every, everything's got a very presence to it, but there's definitely that reverb going behind, especially in the rhythm section or mm-hmm. the drums anyway, where everything's that got that slap back. <laughs> yeah. The slap back echo. Um, but everything's still got this presence to it. Nothing seems like way back in a hallway. Right. No, certainly no gated reverb or anything like no. that, but oh, that's, that's another decade. Ahead. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, yeah, I know what you mean. It has that 1970s dry sound to it, the where yeah. all, all the instruments are right, right in the foreground. Like 
it's all r- right in your face. Yes. Um, very, uh, and uh, you know, I, I think really you have Ringo Starr to, f- to thank for that. I think yeah. because on um let it be and on abbey road he was deadening his drums um by putting like towels on them and getting that really dry sound yeah but also think of um the drums in dear prudence like the instant like even the song starts up for when before the piano even comes in you can hear that slapback echo on a really dry drum yeah so yeah it's uh yeah. It's all tied together. <laughs> well, I guess, yeah, I guess I should give credit where it's due. You wouldn't, uh, Ringo had a, uh, something to do with it, but I guess that would be Jeff Emmerich mm. doing that, wouldn't it? Um, yeah. Uh, so the next song is called Lean Woman Blues. <laughs> like that title. So let's hear it. I guess that was sort of a loose jam kind of thing. Yeah. I like the way he was singing. The the it was done uh, like almost tongue in cheek like with a sense of humor. Um yeah, I just I thought that was it was just funny. <laughs> you know. Um really good guitar playing in that one too. Yeah. Going a little bit closer to the blues there, but yeah, you can hear it uh, still in that uh classic rock and roll sort of tradition but with a very modern for the 1970s sound yeah um yeah um i can maybe i i'm i would like to hear um a live version of that because i'm thinking maybe they did and maybe they didn't but it would be interesting to hear if they just kind of jammed on that for a while Mm. And if they dragged it out to like 10 minutes or something like that. I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere. It probably is. I would like to hear that if they did it. I don't know if they Mm. did. I've never heard a live version of that or anything, but that would be cool. And it's an easy song to jam to. Um, And it would be a lot of fun to, to jam and maybe add some more parts to get some keyboard players in there. Maybe a Fender Rhodes to do some cool stuff. Yeah. Um, it's cool. Uh, it's a pretty simple song. I don't really have much else to say about it. Yeah, I know. It's <laughs> fine. Um, so uh, we're going to listen to the next song, which is a song... This is probably the biggest hit that they had. Uh, it's uh, Bang A Gong, Get It On. Mm. I think there was... It's called Bang A Gong in the States and Get It On in England. Or maybe the... Yeah, it's called Bang a Gong in the States to avoid confusion with a song of the same name by the group Chase. I didn't know that. Mm. I knew there was two different titles, but I didn't know the reason. But, uh... Okay. Anyway, this is Bang a Gong. Get it on. Will you build and call you got a I'm 
still trying to figure out what a hubcap diamond star halo is, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it was the seventies. You don't ask these questions. No, no you just go with it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, Rick Wakeman played on that. Hmm. Uh, interesting. I guess he was playing the piano. Um, cause that's I guess so. the only keyboard that I can really hear unless there's a, a Hammond organ in there that I'm not, that's just kind of buried to support the other instruments. You must have done this just between bands doing some session work before he went and joined Yes. Cause well, when did he join Wes? Or, bleh, Wes. Right, right about this time. Yeah. So, um, well, as the, I was just reading, yeah, it must've been just hanging around cause he, uh, the track was recorded, it, this is on Wikipedia, the track was recorded at Trident Studios in London, and the piano on the record was performed by either Rick Wakeman or Blue Weaver. Um, Mark, I don't know who Blue Weaver is. Mark Patris notes that both pianists have played separate parts on the song, with Wakeman contributing only the piano glissandos. Hmm. Well, so, I guess he played... He may or may not have played on it, I guess. Well, he played a part of it. He played a part of it, yeah. Um, interesting. So I always liked that song. And I can, Me too. Um, I can definitely see why it was chosen as the, the single from the album. Um, it's definitely the most radio-friendly and made it most um, catchy. And it sounds like the song they spent the most time on. Yeah, it sounds more put together than a lot of other things. That's not to say the album is really all loosey goosey, but it it really does sound a little more. Uh, it sounds more methodical. full. It, it's, yeah, there's a lot of overdubs on this. Um, that saxophone is really cool. Yeah, uh, and it, it it's one of those things again where you <laughs> the the saxophone just fits in there, and you yeah. almost don't notice it. Until you realize, oh, that there's a saxophone and it's really cool. <laughs> yeah. You know? No, it's it's funny. They keep a lot of things on the bottom end. Like, they really have filled out the bottom end uh, on the uh, the production of this thing. So much so that, that anything on, on the upper register and, and his voice isn't even really that upper register, but compared to what everything else going on, it is. That and the guitar and sometimes the piano. So everything up in the upper register is so sparse that it stands out mm-hmm. on top of this just thrumming, moving bottom end. That's just this groove that I guess the average listener might not even know exactly what it is that's going on. They just know their butt's moving. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And they know that they like it. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's uh, This song is interesting because... Um, Oasis have a song called Cigarettes and Alcohol that is, I mean, let's just call it what it is. It's a ripoff of this song. <laughs> um, it uses the same guitar riff, the same chords. Um, I don't know. I don't think it uses the same melody, but, uh, it, but, and he, Noel Gallagher knew that he was doing it too when he yeah. wrote that song too. Um, I don't know if he knew the legal ramifications of doing that, but um, it's interesting that this song has gone on to have the 
influence that it has. Uh, I know so many, I think this might have been the first exposure a lot of people had to glam rock was Mm -hmm. this song. Uh, Because when like Bowie came out a few years after this, uh, or his glam, his Ziggy Stardust thing was yeah, after Yeah, Ziggy this. Stardust would have come around, I think it was like 71, 72, something like that. Yeah. Can't remember. Don't don't hold me to that. I don't remember exactly what year that came out. Um, but he, but David Bowie was doing stuff. Uh, his first solo album came out like, what, 67, 68? Yeah. It's almost completely forgotten. Yeah, and he, he, was, he was more also, of a folk singer. Yeah, sort of. But, he was almost like, um, he did... St- Sort of like, uh, oh, he, like a Harry Nilsson almost yeah. sort of a thing. Before Harry Nilsson decided he was going to do like completely bonkers, Monty Python-y sort of <laughs> yeah. stuff. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, um, but before that, there was, uh, he he was in other bands with, uh, like, he was known as Davy Jones. Mm-hmm. That was just his name. He switched it because there was already A, a Davy Jones and the Monkees, and B, it's just, you know, it's a rather kind of whatever name. It's an ordinary <laughs> name, yeah. Yes. He wanted it to stand out more. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, he was in the, there was like Davy Jones and the, okay, I, mean, I can't even remember the name of his other bands. There was two other ones that he had in like the mid-60s. So he was a front man for. Yeah. and But that was all before his glam stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and like, I think this is a lot of, I don't want to say that that T-Rex invented glam rock because I don't know, but yeah. I think this is, I really don't know much about glam rock. I don't really know the origins of it, but I think this might have been the first hit in the glam rock scene. Probably. The first major hit. Well, I think the New York Dolls, when did they first do stuff? I think they were doing stuff around this period too. Yeah, but I don't think they had... But they weren't mainstream. Exactly. Um... Also, uh, the MC5, if you ever saw, um, pick like uh, footage of them when they're actually performing, they look pretty glam even in the late sixties. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. Cause I, when the music doesn't, is pretty hard. Yeah. And, th- but it's, it's, it's interesting when their uh, album came out uh, back in the USA, there was a problem in the production. It came out sounding much thinner than the band generally sounds. And but that thin-ish sound, which they became known as the tiny roar, is became very influential in the punk production. They kind of used that oh. right through, and yeah, you kind of know the sound I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think this. Have you ever listened to the album? Yeah, yeah. No, I know exactly what you're t- talking about. Um, that's interesting. I didn't know that about the MC5. I didn't. Yeah. Because I, I always, my vision of them, I, I really don't know what they looked like. I only know the music, really. I've seen a few pictures, but uh, the the image that I have in my head is this, like, not, like, uh, like rough guys, <laughs> you know, like. They, okay, they could be sort of roughish at times, but if you ever saw a video, like, there's really good footage of, uh, oh, what's that? Uh, the Beat Club, those German TV things, which are all over YouTube, thankfully. Holy crap. Really amazing footage. Full color, everything. And these, I think this was taken around 1970. 
these uh this footage and you should see them like rob tyner's full um sequins everything Just, oh wow he's got this jacket on uh i've seen other footage where they were playing at uh um the what the detroit ballroom where uh i think it was fred sonic smith was like he almost like dressed as a robot <laughs> so it, they could be pretty wild yeah uh, in, in their dress. Um, really wild in their sound and really wild in their dress. They were all out there. See, so. that's, that is interesting. Cause I have, cause when you describe AMC five as a proto punk band, uh, my vision in my head is they're very stripped down, very ordinary. You know, the, the image anyway, is very like, they don't, they didn't really care necessarily what they looked like. It was more about the music, like the, uh, yeah. The ethos of punk rock of the late seventies. Well, and and honestly, I think that was sort of part of it. They didn't care what they looked like. They could be goofy mm-hmm. in the way they looked and didn't feel weird about it. Yeah. It was uh there wasn't a defined image. They was just people they sort of coined the term punk rock because people called them punks. Right. But at the same time, when punk rock became this real like minimalist movement in rock and roll, the MC5 were, they, well, you had like uh, Wayne Kramer could blow, you know, play circles around all sorts of different guitar players at the time. And he, he was, he soloed. And sometimes they did really long jams and they did really long solos. Yeah. <laughs> Stuff that punk became like the antithesis to. Right. Um, but yeah, they never lost their energy when they were doing it though. Cool. That's sort of, it's, that's just sort of what it is. Anyway, we cool. seem to have gotten off track of T-Rex. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> get, getting back to this album. Um, so the next song is called uh, Planet Queen. So let's hear that. The world's the same. I am to blame. She used my head like a the Probably the most laid-back song about alien abduction I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, pretty well. He seems to be pretty into it, too. Yeah. yeah. Uh. <laughs> not, not only is he nonchalant about it, he's actually kind of excited. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like the uh, the conga groove with the drums in there, in the the acoustic guitar. Yeah, that's some of their folk roots coming back out. Yeah. In that, you can sort of hear. But again, it, it still chugs along. Although not in like a 50s rock kind of way. It's definitely, it feels more of its time. Yeah. Um, but there is that sort of psychedelic folk thing going on under underneath, for sure. Yeah. Um, it kind of reminded me of uh, some of the, I guess... More roots rock stuff, maybe like something that the band would do, mm. not the lyrics at all, but yep. the uh, the um, the music itself is maybe influenced by the band a little bit. I don't know. Well, I don't know if it's influenced, mm. but but it it sounds like it. it's very similar to that. The band was very influential around this time. I mean, the basement tapes had already been cir- cycling around for a while. Um, yeah. so yeah there was definitely a lot of influence uh coming from those guys um in you'd find it in weird weirdest places on both sides of the ocean um yeah so uh, 
not surprising that um that they would have an influence i I, like i really don't know if that is but i would guess that that would be the influence on this song yeah could be um yeah it was a interesting song don't have too much else to say about it no it's just you know we've already kind of established uh, our thoughts on like the production. If something else pops out, we'll mention it, but yeah. yeah. So, um, the next song is called girl. Oh God. I know fields above earth. Come and be real for us. Are you with your mind? Oh yes, you are. Talk about minimalism. Yeah. I like the way that the trumpet was, it started out quiet in the background and then slowly started to have more presence. Mm -hmm. And then by the end, it was basically taking over. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But not unpleasantly so. Right. Yeah, it's just uh, an acoustic guitar, really. And uh, I don't think there's really much else going on behind other than um, his singing. No. And I... You know, it's, it's, that's all the song needs. Yep. Doesn't Um, need anything else. I think if you were to put drums on it or a bass, I don't think it would have been, I think, cause, cause I think the lyrics are the more, most important part of this song. And I think if you were to add anything else, it would kind of distract from that. So if you were to put drums and bass on it or, you know, even an electric guitar accompanying it, which they did at the end, they added that at the the end came in. Yeah. But if that had been playing throughout the whole song, I don't know if it necessarily would have worked. Yeah. Um, yeah, it certainly wasn't necessary. I mean, they might've been able to make it work, but they didn't need to take it there. Right. So, and it only came in after all of the lyrics of the song were finished and it was just the outro. Which yeah. just kind of lifted everything up and gave while this, the trumpet, yeah. You know, try not to let the trumpet take all the spot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it, it it kind of it just gave this uh, gr- it gave it a grand finale. Yeah, it sort of uh, gave it this final texture that yeah. sort of actually um, backed up the trumpet more than anything. Yeah. So, and I, I noticed um, this song made me realize that a lot of this uh, album, I mean, the intro is what triggered it because it sounded a little bit like, uh, the kinks, um, uh, Lola, just a little bit. And then I'm thinking there's lots of, you know, it sounds again, kind of Bowie ish, but I'm noticing a lot of like influences of, you know, kinks earlier stuff. And, and even like the small faces Mm -hmm. that you sort of hear throughout this, it's, uh, and other bands kind of like that. Um, you can definitely sort of hear, um, that influence amongst, you know, what they're doing which I guess makes sense. They're from that, uh, they came just after that whole scene. So, yeah. yeah. No, yeah, I can definitely hear the Kinks um, influence, especially the way he's singing is a lot, or very mm. similar to uh, to Ray Davies. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think the Kinks, I think the Kinks, uh, I think, had a lot more influence on British bands than they did, they did in, on American bands. Yeah. They're, they they got a little bit of a... Uh, they had more of a cult following on this side of the ocean, um, but uh, they weren't completely unknown. And of no. course, they had really two really big hits in the mid '60s with 
you really got me and um all day and all the, the night all day and all the night yeah those two um but yeah they had a whole roster of of hit songs in britain and they and they were more than just you know that raunchy fuzzy sound that we were so familiar with over here that we didn't even get another taste of them until lola hit the radio really yeah um but yeah they had lots of great stuff and i think maybe that was just the americans being so overwhelmed with the amount of british bands that were coming up that's partly and plus there's enough stuff coming from home as well that's just the way it works yeah I mean, and not everybody's going to make their way over here. Some of their records will, and those in the know will go, hey, this is great, listen to this. And But it didn't reach anybody else until the uh, the internet could, you know, megaphone it to, you know, decades later. Yeah. Or, or through a Nuggets collection in, like, the late 80s, early 90s. Right. Yeah. Well, in, in, in the Kinks case, I think a lot of it, too... They they had a lot of influence, a lot of um, like indie pop bands. Yeah, um, I know a lot of those types of bands cite the Kinks as a as a mm. big influence. Um, but again, we've gotten a bit <laughs> off track. Off track. Uh, what is it about all these modern tights that always go bagging in the knees? <laughs> Bring back the old canvas ones, I say. <laughs> so, anyway. so the you uh, wanted a bit. <laughs> The uh, next uh, song on the album is called The Motivator. So I really liked the, uh, the bass and drums and the congas and the tambourine combination. Yeah. And that, that really grooved very nicely. There's an interesting thing about this song. Um, I think he wound up doing some really neat things with it, but it did sound to me like this is a song where the record company went to them and said, oh, get it on. That's a great song. Give me another one like that. Yeah. And uh, he went, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's possible. And- but but, uh, but he still wound up doing some neat stuff with it. Yeah. It wasn't a complete throwaway, but you yeah. could definitely tell, like, I guess we got to do this again. <laughs> yeah. I can, yeah, I can see that. Um, especially yeah. with a, a, a title like The Motivator. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I can see that. I never thought about that, but I can see yeah. that. I, I heard the similarities between that and Get It On, but mm-hmm. I just figured that's just his writing style. Um, maybe I'm less cynical than you are. I don't know. <laughs> oh, it's, I'm not really that cynical about it. It's just something that's like, hot. is this like, you know, I know this happens and it sounds like a pretty, um, evident one to me. Um, but again, not, it, I'm not actually trying to put it down. It's just the origin of it. I am guessing because yeah. it's just <laughs> the motivator and it, it goes right into it and it sounds like, okay. Yep, this is very much a similar song. He did change it up that um, uh, those cellos going out in the outro and the harmonica in there mm. were they're neat little textures, and he decided to go a little different there. Um, but yeah, no, it's uh, there's even some of the lyrics weren't exactly uh, uh, 
you know, terrible either or anything yeah. like that. He's just, uh, um, again, just sort of giving it uh, his own flavor, but it really does sound like that song was <laughs> a commission. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Because, yeah, I think maybe the record company heard the album and they said, well, we need another song. We need another you know, we, they, maybe, maybe the, 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 or the single came out and they decide, well, we want at least another one of those on. Yeah. That's possible. Yeah. yeah. And they kind of back them into a corner. Yeah. That, that kind of thing happens all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned the cellos and I, I think I hear, th- um, I, th- it's I wouldn't be surprised if that was an influence from uh the Beach Boys Good Vibrations mm. and the cellos in there. I recently watched a movie um about Brian Wilson. It's a biography uh called Love and Mercy and there's a scene in there where they're recording cuz in the uh, the song Good Vibrations there's a part where the cellos are just chugging along and they're kind of take over. Um, and there's a scene in there where th- it's them in the studio recording that song and Brian Wilson working with the cello players, getting them to do this chugging rhythm over and over and over again for like three hours until it sounds exactly how it is in his head. Is is that uh, the one with Paul Dano? And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's a good movie. I yeah. like that one. Um, John Cusack. John yeah. Cusack. Really yeah. good music. Uh, movie. yeah, I... Um, so anyway, so my, my main point was, I, I think the cellos in this song are, were influenced by the song, uh, Good Vibrations. Mm. Uh, I wouldn't, and that's, again, like Brian Wilson had a huge influence, especially on producers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I wonder if, uh, Tony Visconti, the guy who produced this album, uh, was influenced by that, by putting the cellos on there. Could be. Um, yeah. So we've got two more songs on the album. So, uh, the next song is called Life's a Gas. Life's a Gas. Very interesting. Yeah, I think that's probably the second best song on this album. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I got to give the nod probably to uh, you know get it on Bang a Gong, but uh, this is this is a close number two. It's a very uh, um, it's a well written song, and it's just it's got a really pretty uh, vocal melody. Um, it's just this is a, a really high quality to, to the writing, even before the uh, production instrumentation comes into it. Yeah, no, I, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I agree. It's, it's one of the best written songs on the album. Um, the, and, and the production is really great too. It's a little more sparse than the other ones, mm-hmm. but it still works. Um, yeah. I th- and there's something about, um, an acoustic guitar Paired with an electric guitar with distortion, that mm-hmm. for whatever reason it always sounds good together. Yeah, it, you you have mentioned this a few times in the yeah. past. Yeah, it is a really, it is a really interesting thing. I also thought it was really interesting. Like I didn't, 
I wasn't aware that the technology existed, but there seemed to have been some sort of like octave effect mm-hmm. on the guitar. It sounded really cool. But yeah. 1971, that kind of surprises me a bit. I, wanted, I wonder if it was even a guitar. I wonder if it was, because um, it almost sounded like a clavinet. Uh, it was a guitar. It sounded like a guitar to me, but yeah. I'm wondering if maybe it was uh, a production trick, too. He might have taken the track, doubled it up, and shifted it in the studio. Oh, I'm just possible. wondering. I, well, I don't know if that would necessarily have been possible. Yeah, I have no idea. Because you would have to, in order, because they're working with tape, and the only way that you can lower the pitch in tape is to slow it down. So... Mm-hmm. I have no idea. Yeah. How, that's why I'm trying to figure out how the heck did they get that octave effect. Yeah. But it wasn't a clavinet. Okay. Um, yeah. I, well, so uh, mm, when, was the, when was the first octave pedal? I would imagine it probably came about, um, you know, with the advent of uh, digital recording technologies, the first examples of that. Um, and this is after analog, um, you know, modular synthesizers and stuff like that. Okay, well, it's uh, telling me that the first octave pedal was in 1982. Um, octave effect boxes are a type of special effect unit. Um, one of the first popular musicians to employ the octave effect was Jimi Hendrix. So the, I guess it has been okay. around... Yes, um, the Octavia was something that he that Jimi Hendrix would actually use. It's true. I don't know how the technology worked, but he did actually d- use it. Yeah. Um, that's right. That, so that must be what that. they're using. Gotta be. Well, what else was there? Yeah, that would be. Well, that would have been but, the only option. But it sounds so very uh, clean. I mean, it's it's fuzzy and distorted, but it's but it, the the difference between the two tones is so well defined. It's, there's no mud in between. Right. I thought it was really interesting. Um, and it's not doubled up by, like, with the bass or anything because it's too precise to be yeah. doubled with uh, another uh, instrument. It doesn't sound too much like a double track. No. Um, if it was, damn, they're right on key. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, on, right, on, uh, right on beat. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I don't know. It's a, it, is, it is a little... I I, su- I suspect that someone's tweaked a um a, an octave an octavia to to really uh, uh come out as clean as they could possibly get it. Um that's about all I can think. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, cuz it's, it's definitely not, not they're not definitely not pitch shifting with in the studio no. cuz there would be no way to do that. No, it's not uh it's not a uh, certainly not a a a, a tape thing no. that they're doing. Because, um, yeah, the only way to do it would be to slow down the tape, and you could do that, but then how do you also get the high note at the yeah, same exactly. time? Like, either there would be no way to do it. Yeah, unless you played twice. Yeah. Like, yeah. But it's too precise. One's really fast and one really slow. Yeah, but it's too precise to be yeah, played exactly. to, Like, it's, it's not double-tracked. Nope. Uh-huh. It's, it's, it is really interesting. Yeah. Um, another thing about the song, um, I was mentioning the, uh, the, uh, um, the, the vocal melody and stuff like that. It, it's, the song didn't need it, and, I, and they obviously opted not to do it, but I think it would be kind of neat to hear a harmony vocal. Mm-hmm. But I guess T-Rex just wasn't doing that. 
I can't think of any re, uh, when they ever use that. They use backup singers, but they yeah. didn't use like a, a yeah. harmony. Vocal. Yeah, because the 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 other singer, uh, I think it's Mickey Finn. He's they're just singing in unison mm-hmm. um, here and there. There's no harmony, but I think you're right. I think a, 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 a another high harmony would have sounded really cool on this mm-hmm. track. I don't know yeah. if it would have been worked on all of them. No, 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 no. But yeah, this tra- this track just was sort of. I mean, ultimately, the song is fine without it. I'm not actually putting it down or anything like yeah. that. I just heard in my head a place where a harmony could be, and it would be very would have been cool to hear that at some point. I don't know. Maybe someone's done it. Yeah. Um. So we've arrived at the last song on the album. And the last song, the album closer, is called Rip Off. So that was kind of the perfect album closer. Because it basically had all the elements of the album that we had, had heard so far all mashed into one song. Yeah, it was. Uh, it's it's uh, it it was definitely a punkier approach. Um, so you can definitely, again, feel the tie in there. Yeah, in a lot of ways, like the way the the horn section was being used. Um, was very much in line with what you would hear with some other glam bands. And and the Rolling Stones around this time was doing that. They were basically a glam band at this point. Yeah, they were. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I don't know if this point, they certainly, by 1972, they were. Well, think think of uh, Sticky Fingers. They were still doing... Yeah, it was, I suppose. It was yeah. in line. Yeah. But yeah, they definitely uh, flew way headfirst into it around 72. Um, and certainly by... You know, girls, 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 even, uh, they've, they've started to go back to their roots again by the time, um, um, oh, what's the one I'm trying to think of, uh, Exile on Main Street and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. So, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. You, there's, this is definitely the, the angriest song on the album. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I just think it, it wraps up the album really well because it, it, it ended just, on that cacophony thing yeah going yeah and uh like it it just has everything that the album every every kind of element that we've heard in the album so far was in this song that we had they had the string section they had the fuzz guitar acoustic guitar uh the congas uh, saxophones like everything was in this song yeah um I really like this album. I Oh, it's fun for sure. I never had her I'd never heard this album from start to finish. I always knew the hits. I knew uh like Bang a Gong in Twentieth Century Boy. I think that's the name of the song. Yeah, I don't think it's on this album. It's not on this album, but I that's another one of their yeah. big hits. So I knew those songs, but I never really paid too much attention to them. And um I certainly never heard this album from start to finish and I really like it. Yeah. It's a good album. It is quality. Um, but yeah, I especially loved the, um, 
of course, we we all love Bang Gong, but I like Life's the Gas, and, mm-hmm. and there's a few other really good ones on there as well. It's it's a it's a um it's pretty well put together, I yeah. think. And I think I can see why this was the jumping off point for a lot of people uh, for the glam rock stuff that would you know basically take over rock and roll for the next two or three years. Yep. Um. Yeah. I yeah, I don't know what else to say about this album other than it's great. Um and uh I'm I'm not that surprised that I like it, but uh, it was mm-hmm. it, I was I was pleasantly unsurprised, I guess. Pres- it, uh, it, pleasantly it met my expectations. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Nothing sucks worse than listening to something. You're getting all excited about something. You put it on and it's just like, oh, well, this is not great. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, honestly, it doesn't happen that often. It doesn't happen I, that I don't often. Get that di- I don't get that disappointed with something because I, I like to go into it with a, with an open mind. Mm-hmm. So it, that doesn't happen to me too often when I put on something that I was really expecting and then being sort of disappointed. Yeah. It's happened once or twice, but. But but even in those cases, sometimes it's it had to grow on me, just because what I was hearing was so unexpected. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yeah. So uh, yeah, that's uh, T Rex Electric Warrior. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there's nothing else, that's it for the show for this week. Thank you, so. uh, thank you very much for listening, and I hope you have a great week. I'm Jeremy Boyd, and I'm Joan Van Dyke. Take it easy. You have been listening to Polyphonic Press. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Polyphonic Press. Check out the website, polyphonicpress.com. Feel free to drop us a line at polyphonicpressmusic at gmail.com. And finally, you can support the show by heading over to patreon.com slash polyphonicpress.